Good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and the State of the World. And the subtitle is Where is the World Going To? You're going to be very depressed. <laughs> now, one thing that is important in listening to this talk is that while I am describing the state of the world, the state of the world is our state. We're not separate from it. So remember that. I'm going to start off by giving you three descriptions from ancient history, and then you decide, does this apply to the world today? And see how much of it you do recognize. I can't remember where this is from, but it was recorded 5,000 years ago. And it refers to four ages in the history of mankind. And they are the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. And guess which one we are in. <laughs> so we are in the Iron Age. In the Golden Age, society is pervaded by truth, compassion, austerity, which is discipline, and charity. In the Iron Age, only one of the four parts of virtue prevail, and that is charity. The remaining parts are totally overpowered and destroyed. This is a description now from the book. In the Iron Age, mankind will be perverse in their ways of life, miserly, merciless, greedy, luckless, and vindictive on silly grounds. The male will be dull and narrow in outlook, luckless, gluttonous, poverty-stricken, and extremely lustful. Women, women will all become adulteresses, Thieves will lead the country. The scriptures will be perverted by atheists. Leaders will be mere tyrants. The clerics will live contrary to their vows and will have no sense of purity. Vile men who are no better than cheats will take to trade and business and introduce dishonest practices in buying and selling. Most of them will end up as bankers, basically, right? <laughs> Men will adopt prohibited means of livelihood as honorable and righteous. So think of drug smuggling and pornography and things like that. Masters will abandon their servants when they fall ill or are in trouble, even if they have for generations been serving them. So in a modern context, think of redundancy. People might serve you for 30, 40 years and the bottom line isn't attractive enough, so goodbye. The Kali Yuga, which is this Iron Age, lasts for 432,000 years, according to this. We are 5,000 years into it, so we're only at the beginning of how bad it is going to be. <laughs> all right. So that's why you won't recognize all of it, but you may recognize the beginnings of trends. So it goes on to say, all excellences like truth and cleanliness and forbearance and kindness, longevity and memory and strength will decay. In the Iron Age, wealth takes the place of high birth. 
virtuous conduct and character in estimating a man's worth. Might will become right, being accepted as the factor determining what is lawful and what is justice. Mutual attraction will become the sole consideration in marital relationship. Business will become tantamount to the practice of fraud. Skill in lovemaking will be recognized as the chief excellence in man and woman. If a man is too poor to conduct a case, his case will be considered weak in the eyes of the law. Poverty will be looked upon as sufficient proof of guilt in the case, and ostentation and show will become the hallmark of character. Mating will be looked upon as marriage. Men will live to eat and not eat to live. Mere audacious speech will be taken as adherence to truth. A man who maintains his family by hook or by crook will be considered resourceful and respectable. And law will be observed solely for reputation. The way of the atheists and their teaching will have become widespread. For a pittance, people will quarrel, abandon all bonds of affection and fight with the nearest relatives until they kill them or they are themselves killed. People will fail to take care of even their old parents. Interested only in their own food and sexual satisfaction, they will neglect even talented children. They get in the way of careers or the fulfilment of careers. So that's what was said 5,000 years ago. And you may see some of that beginning to emerge. Plato, two and a half thousand years ago, said the following. He set out a sequential decline from wise leadership to leadership by the tyrant. See if you recognize this. And this is either leadership by another or how you lead yourself or myself. So the first and the highest form of leadership is aristocratic leadership. And aristocratic leadership is not as we understand it today. It is leadership by the wise. So it is ruled by one person. He or she themselves are ruled by one, by truth themselves. They lead for all, and therefore there's unity in the state. So they do not belong to a party, because a party is only partial. True aristocracy is not hereditary, but as I said, is ruled by the wise. When that runs down, and Socrates sets out in detail how it runs down, then you get timocratic leadership. And under timocratic leadership, these are lovers of power and honor. They are uncultured, but fond of culture. They are ambitious and contentious. They are despisers of riches when young, and fond of it when old. Sort of recognize that one myself. They are obedient to authority. And under this type of leadership, it is not ruled by one, but ruled by a few. Not ruled by the wise king, but ruled by the princes. He or she claims to be a ruler, not because he has wisdom, but because he has power. So he's like the domineering father or boss. He's not single-minded, because virtue and avarice are mixed in his nature. So there's the mixture of the rational and passionate. 
So it may be the sort of a very strict person who also has a very bad temper, that type of individual. There's some disunity in the state and there's also disunity in the individual. There's inner conflict. When that declines, it becomes oligarchical leadership. And here you have lovers of money. The rich have the power and the poor none. The greater the money, the less the virtue. And now there are two states in one, rich and poor, always conspiring one against the another. Fondness of money means unwillingness to pay taxes. <laughs> On that basis, we all are a bit oligarchical. And listen to this. Creation of money lending. Money lending is only... Uh, really emerged in the Italian Renaissance, only about 500 years old, to any great extent. Creation of money lending leads to poverty. And with poverty comes thieves. People are elected for their wealth. There's rule by a greater number than before. Now it's no longer ruled by the princes, but by the wealthy. The oligarch only satisfies his necessary appetites. So in the state, there will be frugality, there will be no social welfare, or real care for the needy. At the individual level, the person is strict on himself and on others. He subdues his desires other than for money. He suppresses desires not because they are bad, but because he is afraid to spend his money. He's at war with himself. And so there are two men, not one, living within him. He is caught by the rigidity of his own ideas, and he cannot quell the opposing desires. I want and I shouldn't. You know the sort of situation when you wake up in the morning and I want to lie on in bed, but I shouldn't. It's that sort of internal warfare. Your legs won't obey you. They insist on lying on in the bed. The top half of your body is very happy to get out, but the legs just won't operate. Virtue and desire now actively are fighting each other. We now come to the fourth type of leadership and this is one step away from madness. And this is democratic leadership. <laughs> so we're going there. The love of wealth and the spirit of moderation cannot coexist. So next comes democracy. Here there's care only for money and the pleasure it buys. People are elected by number and not by wisdom. So wisdom is outvoted. Is that okay? And if you take a, a very exaggerated situation, if you were in need of a heart operation and in the surgery there was a heart surgeon and two plumbers you would be operated on according to the skill and art of plumbing. Because the two plumbers would be able to outvote the surgeon. Now you may think that you are a democratic man. But how many people do you want to fly your aeroplane when you're in the aeroplane? Is it just the pilot or would you like everybody to have a go? <laughs> Who do you want to represent you in the court? You want the best. You want the aristocratic the wise one. In every aspect of our lives, we seek the aristocrat 
to help us in our lives. But try to run a country, we do it with democracy, where ignorance can outvote wisdom. In democracy, people decide not by principle, but by advantage and disadvantage. Think of how you vote. If I vote for this person, will it be advantageous to me or not advantageous to me? Man says and does as he likes and orders for himself his own life as he pleases. In this state, you get the greatest variety of natures and therefore you have multiplicity of religions and political parties. So it's very, very difficult for any party to get a majority ever again. It's all coalitions, which means compromise, which ultimately means non-government. Here, personal freedom is most valued. Law falls into abeyance because laws are seen to restrict freedom. With the excessive love of personal freedom, irrespective of how it affects others, there arises multiplicity of laws. People break them because it's no longer possible to know them all. Most of you probably drive a car, but do you know the laws of the road? Do you know how many millimetres of thread you should have on your tyres? It's impossible to know anymore. There was a time when there was one single law for travelling along the highways and byways. And that was you should travel with such care and consideration so as not to cause injury or inconvenience to your fellow travellers. You could learn that one off by heart, couldn't you? (laughs) People break them because it's no longer possible to know them all. They break them and still remain free. We stop implementing the laws. It's too much trouble to implement a lot of the laws. And also our prisons are full. So people break the laws and they stay free. People chaff impatiently at the least touch of authority, considering a restriction of their personal freedom. And in the end, they cease to care even for the laws. Now you have rule from below. And the evidence of this is the multiplicity of pressure groups. All trying to tell how those above are to lead or rule. Leaders are afraid to lead. And it's difficult to lead the masses because they are so varied in their demands. The meaning of everything gets changed, particularly the meaning of words. Remember, this is, again, as I said, two and a half thousand years ago. Temperance in a democratic world means unmanliness. It's not so prevalent nowadays, but 20 or 30 years ago, if you didn't drink, you were sort of unmanly, you know. The guy who could hold 18 pints without breathing outwards was, you know, he was the champion, right? He was the real man. Moderation and orderly expenditure is called meanness now. Anarchy is called liberty. Waste is called magnificence. I don't know if you remember, maybe about 10 years ago, a man called Forbes, who owns a printing empire, American-based. Anyway, I think he was 70 or something like that. And he invited, let's say, 500 people. He flew them into Morocco somewhere, or from all around the world. He spent five million on his birthday party. They called it magnificence. It's just waste. 
Impudence is called courage. There is the move from the school of necessity into the freedom of useless and unnecessary pleasures. The people reject all advice, i.e. from father, mother, religions, religious people, teachers, etc. All pleasures are alike. One is as good as another, so he does not need the advice of another. All modes of life are equal because all are now equal. There's no right or wrong behavior. And what is true for me is my God. Thus there is no respect for elders, the religious, etc. The democratic man is always changing. And he cannot stick to anything. At one stage he is lapped in drink. And then he becomes a water drinker. And tries to get thin. This is two and a half thousand years ago. He even predicted Perrier water. How did he do that? Right. How did he manage that? You know these people, they go off to the gym, have an outstanding workout, and then it's down to the pub. You know, to get rid of the workout. He overeats, this is what Socrates said, I said two and a half thousand years ago, overeats, and then he's into gymnastics. His life is motley and varied. He's never satisfied, driven on by narrow desires and new fashions. See if you recognize this bit. All relationships are inverted. Fathers fear sons. Teachers fear students. There is leadership from below. The young and old are alike. The old are full of pleasantry and gaiety. The old hate to be thought morose or authoritative, particularly by the young. So they adopt the manners of the young in dress and music, etc. <laughs> Do you ever go by the RDS sometime and there's a Rod Stewart concert on? <laughs> <laughs> there's all these octogenarians, you know, and 70-year-olds, all looking like Egypts, you know, <laughs> singing Maggie May or you know, Sailing or something like that. The pursuit of excessive personal freedom means that the state cannot be run, nor can the individual control himself. And in the end, this means anarchy. So the next thing that's coming down the road is anarchy. And that's so depressing, I'm not going to describe what that's like. And from anarchy, tyranny is born. The tyrant starts off as a protector, promising restoration of order and former greatness. Think of Hitler. He promised to restore Germany to its former glory. And it was was anarchic there before he came. So, he starts off as a protector, but he develops into a tyrant. All those that help him to come to power, he kills off. So again, think of Hitler and the Knight of the Long Knives when all those who helped him had their throats cut. We are currently in democracy, a form of democracy, not pure democracy, but not at its lowest levels. So the question for us is, are we heading to anarchy and from there to tyranny? How many generations would it take? That's the second description. The third description, albeit written in the, I think, 1950s, or maybe 60s, 
looks at history and it's by a man called Sir John Glubb. And he looked at 13 empires beginning with the Assyrian Empire which apparently was in 859 BC to the end of the British Empire and he called that 1950. So he looked at 13 empires and he examined where their causes for their initial success and then causes for their ultimate decline and destruction. And as I said, this can be seen at the level of the individual as well as the level of empires, just like in Plato. Now, there are six phases, according to Sir John Glove. The first age is the age of pioneers and explorers. The second age is where the explorers now begin to conquer what they have explored and take control of. So think of the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, but also think of the career of an ambitious individual. The third phase, which we'll take a bit of a look at, is the age of commerce. Wealth pours into the country or individual, and this enables the commercial classes to grow immensely rich. How to spend all this money becomes a problem to the wealthy business community. Art, architecture and luxury find rich patrons. Splendid municipal buildings and wide streets lend dignity and beauty to the wealthy areas of great cities. And the rich merchants build themselves palaces, or little ones on Aylesbury Road. (laughs) The first half of the age of commerce appears to be peculiarly splendid. The ancient virtues of courage, patriotism and devotion to duty are still in evidence. The nation or individual is proud, united and full of self-confidence. And the age of commerce is also marked by great enterprise in the exploration of new forms of wealth. Daring initiative is shown in the search for profitable enterprises in the far corners of the earth, perpetuating to some degree the adventurous courage of the age of conquests. But the fourth phase is the age of affluence. And money is the agent which causes the decline of this strong, brave and self-confident people. The decline is, however, gradual. The first direction in which wealth injures the nation is a moral one. Money replaces honour and adventure as the objective of the best young people of society. Moreover, men no longer normally seek to make money for their country or their community, but for themselves. So ask yourself, do you make money for yourself or your community or your country? Many years ago, I was on a philosophy residential in South Africa. This might have been 15 years ago. And I was talking to a 19, I think he was about 19 year old man. And I asked him, what was he going to do? And he said, he was studying law, and I asked him what he was going to do. He says, I'm going to become a judge. And I asked him, why are you going to become a judge? And he said, because this country needs honest men in the courts. It's not a fantastic basis for choosing how you're going to have a career. Gradually and almost imperceptibly, the age of affluence silences the voice of duty. The object of the young and the ambitious is no longer fame or honour or service, but cash. Education undergoes the same gradual transformation. 
No longer do schools aim at producing brave patriots ready to serve their country. Parents and students alike seek the educational qualifications which will command the highest salaries. The Arab moralist Ghazali, who lived in 1058 AD to 1111, complains in these very same words of the lowering of objectives in the declining Arab world of his time. He says, students no longer attend college to acquire learning and virtue, but to get jobs. An amazing. A thousand years ago. Then we get to the fifth phase, and this is the age of intellect. And if you were to look at, say, modern education today, you would say, is there equal attention given to the education of the heart, or the development of the heart, as there is to the development of the intellect? And you'd have to say that it's completely prejudiced towards the intellect. But the intellect will never make a man happy. Only the heart can make a man happy. The merchant princes of the age of commerce seek fame and praise by endowing works of art or patronizing music and literature. They also found and endow colleges and universities. Sort of like a Smurfit business school type thing, right? The age of intellect is accompanied by surprising advances in natural science. Intellectualism leads to discussion, debate and argument. So you then get debates in elected assemblies or local committees, in articles in the press or in interviews on television. Endless and incessant talking about every topic under the sun. Public affairs drift from bad to worse amid an unceasing cacophony of argument. Do you ever listen to the televised doll and you say to yourself, help me Lord, help me. (laughs) But this constant dedication to discussion seems to destroy the power of action. Amid a babel of talk, the ship drifts onto the rocks. Now, perhaps the most dangerous byproduct of the age of the intellect is the unconscious growth of the idea that the human brain can solve the problems of the world. Even on the low level of practical affairs, this is patently untrue. In a wider national sphere, the survival of the nation depends basically on the loyalty and self-sacrifice of the citizens. The impression that the situation can be saved by mental cleverness without unselfishness or human self-dedication can only lead to collapse. Thus we see the cultivation of the human intellect seems to be a magnificent ideal but only on condition that it does not weaken unselfishness and human dedication to service. The historians of long ago commented bitterly on the extraordinary influence acquired by popular singers over young people, resulting in a decline in sexual morality. The pop singers of Baghdad a thousand years ago, according to the historians, accompanied their erotic songs on the lute, an instrument resembling the modern guitar. Then we have the sixth phase, the age of decadence. It comes about by too long a period of wealth and power, by selfishness, 
by the love of money and the loss of the sense of duty. This age is marked by pessimism and materialism. Religion is greatly weakened and also other features emerge. First of all, there's the pursuit of the trivial. As a nation declines in power and wealth, a universal pessimism gradually pervades the people and this itself hastens the decline. And frivolity is the frequent companion of pessimism, according to Sir John Club. Let us eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The resemblance between the various declining nations in this respect is truly surprising, according to him. The Roman mob, we have seen, demanded free meals and public gains. Gladiatorial shows, chariot races and athletic events were their passion. In the Byzantine Empire, the rivalries of the Greens and the Blues in the Hippodrome attained the importance of a major crisis. Nowadays, if you look at the time and space allocated in the press and television to football and baseball, etc., you would think that these are the activities which chiefly interest the public today. I'll just take a very exaggerated example for anybody who's been to New Zealand. Whatever our love of rugby is, they have a fixation for rugby. So you buy a New Zealand newspaper and it has 30 pages. At least half of them are on rugby. The international section gets a, a, you know, a paragraph. 800 migrants you know, fall off a, a boat and are drowned. We get a paragraph. The report on a match would be much longer. The heroes of declining nations are always the same. The athlete, the singer, or the actor. The word celebrity nowadays is used to designate a comedian or a football player and not a statesman or a literary genius. The works of the contemporary historians of Baghdad in the early 10th century are still available to us today. They deeply deplored the degeneracy of the times in which they lived, emphasizing particularly the indifference to religion, the increasing materialism, and the laxity of sexual morals. They lamented also the corruption of the officials of the government and the fact that politicians always seemed to amass large fortunes while they were in office. So there are three descriptions. One written 5,000 years ago, one written 2,500 years ago, one written 60 years ago, but relating to history from 3,000 years ago up to 50 years ago. So what is the state of the world today? Let's say we forget these three descriptions and just take a look at the, uh, the world today. So let's look at some aspects of modern life. The terrible behavior of human beings to each other. All the following matters are on the increase around the world. Murder, violence, rape, abusive relationships, slavery, drugs, divorce, suicide, war, serious crime, corruption and fraud, poverty, social, political and economic injustice. The second aspect of modern life is the dominance of materialism. Everybody seeks happiness, but the dream of happiness becomes the dream of riches. 
Many say that when they have enough, they will stop. Do you ever make that idiotic statement to yourself? When I have enough, I will stop. But we always want more. And you want to know why you will always want more. There's a law of this and you can't escape it. You will always want more because you're unhappy. It's not that you actually want more, but you're unhappy and happiness drives you to wanting more. If happiness does not come forever, we will want more and more. When you're young and you're dating and you don't love the person that you're dating, well then, a second girlfriend is kind of nice. Right? For the other nights. Right? When you find love, the thought of two wives would be appalling. Once you find that which satisfies the heart, you'll never want more and more and more. How many of the rich are free of acquiring still more and more? And because of the dominance of more and more, the idea prevails that growth is good. So do you think growth is good? Imagine if your body kept growing. You died about 18 foot 6, you know, 115 stone. Who ever said that growth beyond a particular point is good? Anyway, the idea prevails that growth is good. This breeds undue competitiveness, hoarding, holding out of use and envy. And the underlying false assumption of materialism is that full satisfaction for the human being can arise from gratifying the senses alone. However, one cannot satisfy the senses permanently. Transient things offer transient happiness and limited things offer limited happiness and particularly limited in time. So having eaten to our satisfaction, we are hungry five hours later. It is a never-ending treadmill of search, endeavour, acquisition and temporary pleasure, followed shortly by new search, etc., etc. There is no connection between happiness and material prosperity. An unhappy man will not enjoy the possession of a mansion. Material things satisfy the senses and so they can satisfy the physical only. In the developed world, much of the suffering is not physical, but mental and emotional. Anxiety, discontent, frustration, uncertainty, depression, doubt and loneliness. Now, I've told this story before, but I, I have acted, well, still act to a certain degree in this uh, category, but of helping people buy and sell companies. And there was a particular company and a man owned a third of the company and he basically hated the business world or the commercial world. So he wanted to sell out and he asked me to help him and he wanted a certain amount of money and by negotiating with his other two partners I managed to, anyway, bring about a situation where he got a big dollop of money, quite a lot more than he actually had originally wanted but it was a fair deal so everybody was happy. And he told me that... uh, Now that he had the money and he didn't have to live in the commercial world, he was going to go to art galleries and fine music and all these sort of things, drink wine in the the south of France and 
South Africa and all this sort of stuff. And he painted this amazing picture of happiness, as he called it. Anyway, I met him uh, six months later. I call him Fred. And I said, Fred, how are things going? He said, terrible. Terrible. I said, what's wrong? He said, deposit interest rates have plummeted. (laughs) It's something that has never bothered me, by the way, not having had enough money to earn any deposit interest. But you see, if you're starving in Brazil, deposit interest rates don't bother you at all. The material world offers immediate satisfaction. And notice the increased demand for immediacy. Do you know, waiting for a lift in an office block or whatever, do you know that they discovered, do you know how long people can wait before they get irritated for a lift? It's ten seconds. (laughs) And then they start pressing the button. You know, as if lifts operate according to how you press the button. So you know what the way they came up to make people stop getting irritated while they were waiting for a lift. They put a mirror where the lift is. (laughs) That should keep you occupied for a little while. (laughs) The material world offers immediate satisfaction. Notice, as I said, the increased demand for immediacy. The results of prayer or spirituality are unseen and longer term. And we are impressed by the results we can see. Therefore, there is faith in the physical and little or no faith in the spiritual. Science has now begun to demonstrate some of the worst aspects of religion. It has become increasingly dismissive of alternative scientific views or religious viewpoints. Now, a scientist may place a man on the moon, but tell him you have a moral dilemma or a problem, and ask him or her what you should do, and they will say to you, you have to go elsewhere for that answer. Just as materialism cannot satisfy the inner man, science cannot answer all the problems of man. Science and technology are excellent servants for our physical welfare, but not for the rest of us. And the challenge is to enjoy the physical creation, i.e. wealth in the physical world, without poverty in the inner or spiritual world. Another aspect of modern life is independence. This creation is a creation of interdependence. You don't get to do your own heart operations. You need others to do that, or to be your dentist, or to fly your aeroplane, and all these sort of things. But in this modern world, There's a striving for an artificial level of independence. So in place of our interdependence on one another, today, wherever possible, we tend to rely on machines or service. Those who helped the farmer used to be family and friends and neighbours, and now it's a contractor. Modern living is so organised as to demand the least practical dependence on others. Now, our future is much more dependent on our jobs, our employers, than on our neighbours. Therefore, others are not so important to our happiness. We often ignore their plight, and people find it harder and harder to show basic affection to each other. Even basic civility is under threat. Despite millions living in close proximity 
there is increasing loneliness and alienation. In the UK, 35% of all adults live on their own. One in three people live alone. The old have nobody to talk to except their pets. When my mother became elderly, I noticed two things about her, which apparently is very, very common. But one thing is, if I go to a pass machine, I would take out a couple of hundred, two or three or four hundred euros, so I don't have to go again for a while. My mother would take out 20 euros. And then she'd be back the next day for another 20. It was because the walk to the pass machine kept her occupied. And I remember trying to... uh, Now, I'm an accountant by training, so everything is efficiency, you know. So when we go shopping, we're going to do it really efficient. We're going to pile up. We're going to get a ginormous fridge, right? <laughs> we're going to pile up everything, and we won't have to go again for three weeks. I would drag my mother to a corn court or wherever and try and do this, and she never wanted it. What she wanted to do was to go to the shops extremely frequently, so she could have a conversation about her arthritis to the shop assistant. That was a long conversation, trust me. Right? A long, long conversation. It killed off a lot of local shops in our neighbourhood, right? People started to go to Dunn stores where at least the service was quick. The fourth aspect of modern living is confusion. In the modern world, there's growing confusion as to what morality is and what its foundations are. As Socrates forewarned, all modes of life are deemed equal and morality is now a matter of individual preference. However, you would not do this to a child. You would try and direct it to the best. You would put amazing efforts into training it. And you would educate it to avoid the worst. As a parent, you spend your life telling it what is right and what is wrong. However, in adulthood, we behave as if there is no right or wrong. Religion, true religion, used to offer this clearly. And just as it is necessary and beneficial for the child to know what is right and wrong, so is it for the adult. And for a happy, certain, clearly directed life, we need to know what is positive, negative, right, wrong, appropriate, inappropriate, and true and untrue. The fifth factor of the modern world, and and this is horrendous stuff now, but true, is the inequality in the world today. You may have read these statistics recently. The bottom half of the world's population, that's about 3.5 billion people, own the same as the richest 85 people in the world. Do you think that's reasonable? That 85 people own as much as 3.5 billion people. Seven out of ten people live in countries where economic inequality has increased in the past 30 years. So the gap is widening all the time. Someone with an annual income equal to 25,000 US dollars, so let's say 20,000 euro, is richer than 98% of the world's population. So if you earn more than 20,000 euro per annum, you're in the top 2% of the world. Do you feel that you are? If there were only 100 people in the world, 80 would live in substandard housing. 
70 would be unable to read, 50 would suffer from malnutrition, one would have a college education, and one would own a computer. Worldwide, countries spend 780 billion on the military, and people spend 400 billion on illicit drugs every year. Europeans spend 11 billion a year on ice cream because you could not live without ice cream. That 11 billion, 2 billion more than the estimated annual total needed to provide clean water and safe sewers for the entire world's population. Do you think you could do that? Just give up the ice cream? so that all the world would have clean water and safe sewers. Americans and Europeans spend 17 billion a year on pet food, 4 billion more than the estimated annual additional total needed to provide basic health and nutrition for everybody in the world. Americans spend 8 billion a year on cosmetics, 2 billion more than the estimated annual total needed to provide basic education for everyone in the world. So if you're happy to have your eyes a little bit smaller, your eyelashes natural, the colour of your skin totally natural, we could educate. We could provide basic education for every human being in the world. Of the 4.4 billion people in developing countries, nearly three-fifths lack access to safe sewers. A third have no access to clean water, a quarter do not have adequate housing, and a fifth have no access to modern health services of any kind. It is estimated that the additional cost of achieving and maintaining universal access to basic education for all basic health care for all, reproductive health care for all women, adequate food for all, and clean water, and safe sewers for all, is roughly 40 billion a year, or less than 4% of the combined wealth of the 225 richest people in the world. And it would make no difference to them. I'm going to paint a little picture for you. So I want you to imagine your own house, right where you live. And I want you to imagine a neighbour. I don't want you to pick out a particular neighbour that you hate now. But let's say a neighbour's house. And it has to be a house, a two-storey house, all right, that is beside you. And there's a family living in that house. And there are eight people living in that family. Is that okay? Two of the people live upstairs. And six of the same family live downstairs. The two that live upstairs have a life expectancy of about 80. The six downstairs die about, on average, 25 to 30 years younger. The two upstairs are fully educated. Downstairs, they're not educated. Upstairs, there's clean water and all that sort of stuff. Downstairs, there is no running water and there is no electricity. You've got access to doctors. You have entertainment. You have... 1,000 channels on your TV. The two that live upstairs are absolutely aware 
that there are six downstairs. They know they're downstairs and they know exactly what it's like for them to live and they're members of the same family. But they ignore them. Now, if somehow this got into the newspapers that the the Murphys from next door lived like that, right? What would you think of them as a family? You would think they're a family from hell. How could they do that within a family? But those eight people and that one home is the human family living on this earth. And you and I are the two upstairs. That's what we are. It takes 800 people to, you know, to fall off a boat to move us in for a couple of days. And then we forget. And how far can our governments go? What they say is, okay, we'll increase the patrols to stop them. Why do you think they're leaving the countries they're in? Because life is so appalling for them. It's worth the risk. And all we're going to do is allow them to live longer in pain and misery in their own countries while we have our ice cream and bring Rufus for a walk with long eyelashes. (laughs) This is one view as to the state of the world and thus the state of ourselves. We saw from the description of the Iron Age also what Plato had to say and what Sir John Glubb had to say of the decline of empires or society. How matters can descend to worse and worse. It is very important not to think that it's going to get better. History does not show that. Okay. Having heard all that wonderful news, what are the potential reactions to this? One is despair. Right? The second one is you can get angry at being told this. I came out for a night's entertainment, right? <laughs> not to be upset. Or you can think that history shows that it's never been better. Or you can close down your vision of awareness so that it's all blocked out. Or you can say that there's nothing that I can do that can change this. The problem is so big, there's little that I can do. I can make no difference. And there's a nice story about this of a businessman who's walking along a beach and he sees a man in the distance, quite a distance away from him, and about every two or three seconds the man seems to bend down and do this with his hand. And so the businessman is curious about this and walks closer and closer to him. And as he gets closer, he sees that he's picking up something and throwing it back into the ocean. So he gets uh, right up close, and what he sees is there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of starfish which have been washed up on the shore, and they're drying out in the sun, and they're, they're dying. And the man, as he's walking, is picking up a starfish and throwing it back into the water. And the man asks him, what are you doing? And he says, well, all these starfish have been washed up, they will die in the sun, and I'm throwing them back into the water. And he says, but look around you. There's hundreds and hundreds of thousands. You can do nothing for them. So the man picks up one, throws it back in the water and said, made a difference to him. (laughs) See, and that's the point. If you left this world making a difference to one person, that would be excellent. 
The Buddha said, let no man think lightly of evil and say to himself, sorrow will not come to me. Little by little a person becomes evil, just as a water pot is filled by drops of water. Let no one think lightly of good and say to himself, joy will not come to me. Little by little a person becomes good, just as a water pot is filled by drops of water. The world will become a good place if each person does his or her little bit. Now, any of those above reactions such as despair, etc., would be a great pity, in fact a tragedy, and mainly a tragedy for us. Man is refinable. Whatever he attends to, he refines. Whatever he ignores becomes gross. So just think of your garden. Man has the power to refine both himself and the creation. So how are we to respond? What can we do practically? The proposition is, in this talk, that the current bad state of the world, or further decline, is not inevitable. And the solution lies in true spirituality. There are very few truly religious people today. There is very little desire for institutionalized religion with its dogma and rituals. So the need is for that which is attractive to today's human being. And that could be true spirituality, i.e. love, compassion, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, generosity, contentment, etc., etc. Religion can divide, but spirituality always unites. In truth, the essence of any religion is spirituality. Practical spirituality is to act for the well-being of others. It is the movement from me to all, from individuality to universality. All the world's problems, in truth, are spiritual problems. And all the solutions, in truth, are spiritual solutions. Many think problems cannot be solved by religion or spirituality, but what I'm saying is that they cannot be solved without spirituality. If you consider the words of the Gospels or the Dalai Lama or any great sage of the world, none of the world's problems would exist if their words were practiced by all of us. For example, there's enough for all due to science, but not all get it. This is not a technical distribution problem, but a spiritual problem. Why does a small percentage of the world's population want to hoard vast amounts while others have none? You cannot stop crime with sophisticated detection methods. Criminals simply use sophisticated evasive methods. But you can stop crime with morality with inner discipline, with ethical restraint, with spirituality. So how can we make, how can you and I make this world a better place? Sir John Glubb says, however varied, confusing and contradictory the religious history of the world may appear, the noblest and most spiritual of the devotees of all religions seem to reach the conclusion 
that love is the key to human life. We can expand and strengthen love in our lives. And what is it to love? To love is to see yourself in another. It is to act in the best interests of all. Until you love all, you do not know what real love is. You cannot really love a few. Not loving all prevents you from really loving your spouse, from really loving your children. You deprive yourself of the experience of real love. Real love is to turn us and them, this two-story house, into all of us. It is to see humanity as the one human family of which we are all members. The Shankaracharya, the man that the School of Philosophy put all his questions to, he said, one who sees thus, one who sees all of mankind as his own family, for him the whole creation is a family. So he treats everyone in the world with love and affection. With love he wishes to impart a bliss to everyone. Love is wonderful because anyone with love in his heart wants to see everyone in bliss, everyone healthy and everyone availing freedom. And the Shankaracharya tells this true story about a man of great love who was called Swami Ramatirtha, lived about 60 or 70 years ago. And he was born of a poor family in Lahore and he studied under street lamps in the night. So his family couldn't afford the oil for the lamps at home to be running all the time. So he used to go out onto the street, underneath the street lamps, and study. After passing with honours, he was appointed a professor in his own college. He became a professor of mathematics. He had a family, a mother, a wife, and two children. And he was in the company of a wise man and used to see him daily. After some time, his reason was awakened and first he declared he would share his salary with all who were in need of money. Can you imagine making that declaration? He would put his salary on a table and whoever was in need could help himself. One day his wife complained of being ignored to which he simply replied, you are not out of the creation, so you also can go to the table and help yourself. Gradually, he felt as if all children were his children, and all women were his mother's sisters or daughters. Later on, he renounced the householder life and started working for everyone. He broke all the circles one by one and worked for the universe. Now, you may see Swami Ramatirtha as exceptional. And if so, if he is exceptional, what are we to do? How are we to act practically in this modern world? Well, the need is to expand this love in our life step by step according to our capacity. And the key concept for this is family. You cannot build a society with individuals. You can only build a society with families. Because family demands enactment of love, compassion, sacrifice and the care of others. It is the first step to universality. Us and them could not happen in a true family. All of us is the very essence of family life. 
So initially practice being a true member of your family. Be a true son or daughter or brother or sister or nephew or niece. Be a true father or mother or uncle or aunt or husband and wife. And then expand beyond the blood family. And the Shankaracharya gave the School of Philosophy an ancient, beautiful principle which allows this to happen in daily life. A a way to treat everybody as your own family. He said, in everyday life, treat those older than you as father or mother. Those the same age as you as brother or sister and those younger than you as son or daughter. Just in your interactions with them. And if you do this, you will treat everybody as your family. Mother Teresa said that if everyone swept outside their own front door, the whole world would be clean. To treat everybody as family is to sweep clean our own hearts. So let the growth of love keep pace with the growth of wealth, and all will be well. And here are a number of practices that each and every one of us can adopt which will change the world. First of all, cultivate the feeling of non-duality in all worlds, physical and subtle. Never treat another as other than yourself. And this is the golden rule of all true religions and great philosophies. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Secondly, leave everything in as good a shape or better than you find them. It regards everything. Imagine if three generations did this. They left the world in a better state than they had entered into the world. Do you imagine how much improved the world would be within three generations? Thirdly, grow something. It can be one strawberry pot, if that is all is possible for you. And this will teach you to love Mother Earth, to respect her, and not to be greedy in what you want to take from her for your own use. Fourthly, live honestly, hurt no one, and render to everybody their due. And fifthly, find the material measure for your life. And just maybe to explain that, certainly when I came to the School of Philosophy first, this was a sort of a troubling question. How much money should I keep for myself and how much should I give away? There were times I could argue about giving away a lot and then there were times I could have the opposite argument. And it reminded me of when one of our daughters was very young and she saw some program about poor children who didn't get presents at Christmas. So she said, I'm going to give them all away. I'm going to give all my toys and things away. So she asked for a big black sack. So she went down to her bedroom, got a black sack, put everything in, like that, and put the sack beside the front door. And we rang the charity, and they said they'd be there in a week's time. Right? And every day, <laughs> she went to the sack <laughs> and took out particular things and brought them down to the bedroom. <laughs> So it is a big problem. How do you judge this? How do you judge how much you should have for yourself and how much you should give to others? And the Shankaracharya gives the very best answer that I have ever heard in this regard. To me, it's just truly outstanding. Now, it's a reasonably long answer and I'm going to read it because I think it's just well worth it. 
So that he, he's asked this question. And he first of all says, it would be authoritarian for anyone to regulate what others deserve. So it's not for one man to tell another man, give away X. Is that okay? That would be authoritarian. Thus, this question need not concern the organisation of the school, but should be addressed to oneself. So never worry about how much another man should give away. Only look to yourself. Is that okay? To try and find the measure of what one needs to fulfil one's role, one can try cutting out something and see if you can survive naturally with dignity. If your economies begin to hinder your family life, your education, or your professional work, then you have reached a limit. Anything extra must be returned to society. The fewer desires one entertains, the happier one becomes. Desires have no limit, simply because the world is full of many beautiful things. Moreover, finer things are less numerous. If one entertains a longing for ten things, then even if one of them is not acquired, agitation is bound to prevail, and it is very limiting. So why not reduce desires and remain free and therefore happy? And then he says, one should experiment for oneself and within the household. If you have ten suits, cut down to nine, and then slowly to eight or seven, or whatever is practical and dignified, but not luxurious. What has been renounced will be returned to the universe. When one person takes to, and I use a Sanskrit term, when one person takes to asteya, which means non-stealing, others may learn and follow. The world would then be a better place. Now, just as in the Christian tradition we have ten commandments, in the Vedic tradition there are equally commandments. They're not identical to the ten Christian ones, but there are also commandments. And one of them is not stealing. But it's a completely different definition of not stealing. Stealing, in the Vedic tradition, is when you keep for yourself more than you need. How about that? Because you're stealing from the universe. The universe has provided it to you. But if it's more than you need you should return it to the universe. Keep what you need and return the rest to the universe. So it's not just you know, putting your hand in another person's pockets. It's more putting a hand in your own pockets and giving back what you don't need. Sixthly, value your own contribution. This is so important. Do everything to the best, particularly the small repetitive tasks. And in this way, the world gets the best of you and is enriched by your presence. Seventhly, live on the fruits of your own efforts. So always live within your means. There is the example, I think it's from one of the Charles Dickens books, that if income is 19 shillings and 11 pence, and expenditure is a pound, the outcome is misery. If income is a pound and expenditure is 19 shillings and 11 pence, the outcome is happiness. It's only twopence difference. That's all. And misery turns to happiness. Eighthly, and lastly, render to the community its proper due. So do not minimise what you contribute to the community. Pay your fair taxes. Obey the laws of your nation. 
vote for national interests at least and respect the institutions of the state. We can live in a small room in the big house of this world or we can live in the big house itself. The choice is ours. We can be a member of the human family. We can be a citizen of the world. We can have no frontiers in our hearts. We can emulate Dalai Lama who says, who knows the consequences of our actions? But one could leave this life having been only a positive influence on the world and on the happiness of others. This would be a life well lived. One would have no regrets and one would have done one's best. Now the following can be your prayer and my prayer. And it is the favourite prayer of the Dalai Lama. May I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a bridge for those with rivers to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those in need of light, a place of refuge for those in need of shelter, and a servant to all those in need. To do this is to do all we can, and to do all we can is both the minimum and the maximum required of us. To do all we can is within our capacity, and to do less than we can is to deny our very humanity. And that's the end of the talk. So, thank you. What would you like to ask? Hello there. At the beginning of the talk, you painted a very dark picture of getting worse and worse and worse. At the end of the talk, it was very bright and light. That brightness and lightness, is that not coming from a, say, like a new renaissance? Like, say, Plato's teaching came to the West in the 1500s, and now meditation and the Indian or the, you know, that Vedic tradition has come to the West and that is introducing this lightness. Surely that is, a, that is what you're talking about and it's, it's a much more positive way of looking at the world and ourselves. Absolutely. However, <laughs> I think that the, first of all, the way the world is going at the moment is it really is dividing into two. So materialism is becoming more and more rampant but in the West, there is a greater turning to spirituality by a small percentage of the population. And that is absolutely excellent. It just depends whether we can get to the tipping point or not. One thing that is encouraging is that Socrates pointed out that when you decline all the way from wise leadership or aristocratic leadership and you get down to the tyrant, that after the tyrant comes wise leadership again. So it's like winter turns to spring. It's not that you have to reverse your way up the ladder. 
what happens is that things become so bad that a wise man or woman emerges and the people are so miserable they turn to them. It's also intimated in the religious traditions. It, some would say that when the world gets into levels of terrible ignorance, then God incarnates himself in order to bring about an uplifting again. So Krishna coming into the world or Jesus or whatever. But the tragedy is it doesn't have to get that terrible. It doesn't have to get that terrible. This process, albeit is a natural process of decline. So without endeavour, without conscious endeavour, things decline. That is the natural way of things. But it does take conscious endeavour. So unless you and I and many others are willing to apply ourselves, it will decline. You have to work at it. Consciously work at it. And then you have to share it. To really share it. And just to give you an interesting observation, because in India you have a tremendous dedication to the spiritual world, as evidenced by a whole line or lines of sages and sages. But you have absolute chaos in society. An unbelievable deprivation and inequality. And the Shankaracharya was asked about this. And he says, when the very best come out of society and dedicate themselves to seclusion in the spiritual world, society is weakened terribly. So he encouraged members of the school of philosophy or those who take to this form of work to stay within society, to have careers, family, etc., etc., so that the very best of society is not withdrawn into, let's say, secluded spiritual work. And in this way, then all of society will, if they are truly spiritual people, all of society will benefit from them. But it's very necessary that work is done. You know, you should go to, and I say you now, I'm pointing to myself as well, but you should go to bed tonight a better man than you woke up. Don't think, oh, well, in five years I might have improved slightly. It's every day you should go to bed a more loving man, a wiser man, a more generous man, a more peaceful man. Every day, and you should be able to say that. And if you can't, you should stay up until you can say it. <laughs> That'll keep you awake tonight now, huh? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. On a practical level, yes. uh, why aren't the 5% who hoard all this great wealth at the expense of the majority of humankind, why aren't they named and targeted well, they are named. I can't give you a list of 85, but it's, is it possible to find out who the 85 are? Absolutely. If I may say so, why don't you Google it? The Sultan of Brunei, there's one. Some of the leaders of the Arab world would be some. I, I don't know whether these make it into the top 85, you know, the, the Facebook man and a few other of these people. Bill Gates has given away a lot of his wealth, and so has Warren Buffett but they'd still probably be in the top 85. It's not a matter of naming them. What is the matter? It's a matter of educating people so that they realize that a wealthy man has a responsibility, that his wealth is for the benefit of the world. i tell you what my experience is. Now, and I don't know very, very, very wealthy people, but I know people of reasonable levels of wealth. But people who are not so wealthy are absolutely convinced that they earn the money themselves. But ones who are particularly wealthy will acknowledge that they couldn't have earned it all themselves. It took others or it took 
They might call it luck or divine providence or something like that. The thing is to acknowledge is that it is through the work of others and the cooperation of others that wealth comes to you. You can't do it yourself. And your job is to take it, keep that which is necessary for your position in life, and to return it to society in a way that it is spent wisely. That's the idea. I think it has to be taken from them. They won't give it. Well, if you educate a man, if you truly educate a man, and I don't mean a person to get 540 points, I mean educate a human being, he will know that this is what he should do. That would be the ideal. If that can't be the case, then you do it with legislation. But the tragedy with legislation is that the more legislation you introduce, the more gaps there are between one piece of legislation and another. And I can t- anybody who wants to keep their wealth can keep it. The ones who are finding ways to retain the wealth are cleverer than the, the legislators. So it is down to education. It's down to parenting and teachers that a child learns that he has a responsibility to the world. That if he or she is blessed with talents, it's meant to be for the benefit of all. It is not a means for accumulating wealth for yourself or just a very small number of people that you have some affection for. It needs to be much larger than that. There is a fundamental question that every human being has to ask, and that is, am I going to live for myself? Am I going to live for myself and a few that I have bonds or affection to? Or am I going to live for all? And every child should be encouraged to live for all. All the great human beings that we admire, that's what they've done. They break down barriers. The the Mother Teresa's of this world or Nelson Mandela's. They don't go off somewhere and buy a house and have a 30-year mortgage and three children and die in obscurity. They do something. They make a difference. The vast majority of us may never get onto a public stage and that's not necessary, but every one of us can make a difference. You can throw that starfish back into the sea. And every day you should make a difference. Every day you can make a difference. Everybody can work within their capacity. That's all that's required. Not one of us has to save the world. We can help a few. When a country goes into a recession, it doesn't take a large number of entrepreneurs to take it out of that recession. I mean, one man can, or one man, woman, can employ 100 people. So I think there's, is it 240,000 are unemployed in Ireland now? So let's say we could create 2,400 entrepreneurs. Is that impossible for a nation? 2,400 real entrepreneurs. I've told this story before, but there's a, the man is dead now, but a very good man, an entrepreneur in England, and he had one business, and the business employed about 12 people. It was a consultancy business and made a lot, a lot of money. And there was a manufacturing company that he had that employed about 300 people, and it lost about an equal sum of money. So he spoke to his accountants, which is a dreadful thing to do if you want to make a wise decision, but anyway, that's what he did. And they suggested to him that he should close down the company that was losing all the money and employed 300 people. And this was in a small town in England. And this man, as I said, very good man, he's in the School of Philosophy, and he went to Leon McLaren, who is the man who founded the School of Philosophy. And he said, what should I do? And he said, under no circumstances do you close down that manufacturing company. He says, you're an entrepreneur. That means you have the ability to create wealth. Your responsibility is to use your intelligence 
to create alternative employment for these people. That's what you're to do. Use your talents to provide employment, you know, useful occupation for these people. And that's what he did. Now that's fantastic. That's education. He said an entrepreneur is not a money maker. Otherwise he'd be called a money maker. He's called an entrepreneur. And entrepreneurs are people who can support with their uh, talents and energy and intelligence, they can support large numbers of people. And that's what they should do. Because that's their talent. If you're Pavarotti, you should sing. You shouldn't play football. <laughs> Unless you're a goalie. <laughs> I, <laughs> then you don't even have to move. You can just stop everything that comes your way. Right? But if you're an entrepreneur, create wealth in the world. There's nothing wrong with wealth, by the way. The way Mr. McLaren used to put it, he says, any Egypt can make money. And we all know Egypt's with lots of money. So, you can take it that it's true. But it takes wisdom to spend it excellently. That takes wisdom. That's what one should do. Yes. Hi. I'm just wondering, uh, you spoke about 5,000 years ago. Yes. And are you saying in a way that like, we've learned nothing, despite all the history, all the learning, all the experiences that we've had, we're unable to accumulate that knowledge and learn from it. So here we are 5,000 years later, and we're going to make all the same mistakes. Yes, fundamentally. That's the good news. <laughs> but there's a reason for it, and it's important to know the reason for it. What the youth have, what young people have, is they have energy, enthusiasm, adventure, optimism, and all these things. What the elderly have is experience. If the two generations can work together, if the young can learn from the old, then they don't have to repeat the mistakes. And if I can just give a story, and it's a philosophical story, but it applies to the commercial world as well. When Leon McLaren got very old, he's in the early 80s, the Shankaracharya said to him, you need to appoint a successor, somebody who will take over when you die. And Leon McLaren did, and he appointed this man called Donald Lambe. And what he said to Donald Lambe, he said, okay, you will take over the leadership of the school, and what I want you to do is I want you to come to me every day and put your questions to me. So, virtually every day for two years, this man would drive to where Leon McLaren lived, sit in front of him and put his questions. He said for the first fortnight it wasn't too difficult because he had lots of questions. But he said then it became incredibly difficult. But he did it for two years and Leon McLaren died at that stage. The 84 years of philosophical application, incredible philosophical application by Leon McLaren was transferred to a large degree to Donald Lambie in two years. Now that's real efficiency. So Donald Lambie then started off where Leon McLaren finished. Then you can get improvement. Your children at a certain stage have an immense affection and admiration for you which is then shattered as they begin to <laughs> develop the age of reason and the capacity to truly observe. Right? When my son was going through this unbelievable affection stage for his father, I said to him now, never, ever, ever model yourself on me. 
Right? That's not a goal. That's not a valid goal in life. What this household has been run for is for you to stand on my shoulders and move from there. And if a son or a daughter will stand on the shoulders of his parents, in three generations you will get outstanding human beings. Really great human beings. So, if you're a father, let's say, you may not be able to pass on your talents, but you will assist the passing on of your virtues and your strengths, but not your vices and weaknesses and corruptions. And if that's done, in three generations, you, you start to get amazing people. Really great people. So that's what you do. Given that, if that is true, there's been a terrible waste for the last 5,000 years of learning that hasn't, for some reason, been passed yes, on. Yeah, but again, if you take the descriptions of democracy that Plato described, we have fundamentally been in democracy for a long, long time. So let's just take 2,500 years. It varies, the strength of the democracy. It gets mixed with the other types of leadership. But one of the things of democracy is that you ignore parents, the elderly, the religious, the institutions, history, everything. Your mind is the ultimate determiner of what is true and false, of what is useful and not useful. That is just simply not true. You don't imitate the, the weaknesses of those who have gone before you, but you certainly should take the best of them. And if that is the case, well then, great progress can be made. But nowadays, and particularly nowadays, the traditional anything is not valued at all. So the wisdom of a previous generation doesn't pass on to the next generation, and each generation is starting at scratch. That's a terrible waste. Terrible, terrible waste. So we have to find a way. Now, one of the things is that our education is appalling nowadays. It's just appalling. It wouldn't inspire a human being to greatness at all. So we have to honour the humanity in the child. We have to honour the uniqueness of each child and encourage each child to attain its own particular greatness, public or private. Again, I've said this before, but I invited over an Indian educationalist to Ireland to meet with a number of teachers, and albeit I'm not a teacher, I sat in with him. Now, he referred to the English education system, and you could say primarily English, but it applies to the Irish education system, and you could call it the Western education system. But anyway, this is what he said. He said the English education system is one system for all children. And it is fundamentally to produce workers for an economy, which is disgusting. He said the ancient Indian education system, which doesn't exist to a large degree anymore, is one education system per child. Isn't that outstanding? That you absolutely acknowledge the uniqueness of what is in front of you, but then encourage that uniqueness to be developed for the benefit of all. And when we get an education system like that, then, in my opinion, you will get great men and women emerging who serve their communities and their nations and, ideally, the world. And that was the original intention behind the, the setting up of the John Scotus School by the Dublin School of Philosophy, that an education that would encourage people to live very large lives with very large ideas. Does that make sense? Very good, thank you. Yeah. You won't solve problems just with economics. Economics has its validity. But tinkering around with the top rate of tax and all of this sort of stuff, that doesn't 
solve it. You solve it with excellent parenting, excellent education. You solve it by developing the heart of man as well as his intellect. Because it's only the heart that has compassion, that will wish to share. The intellect doesn't believe in sharing. It believes in counting. (laughs) How much have I got? But the heart will share. There's something wrong that a small part of the world can have so much and be unmoved by the misery of so many. Something wrong with that parenting and that education. Just leading on from that point. Yes. It sounds like the description given of now is terrible. Yes. In the past there have been terrible times as well. Are we destined to have terrible times and then after that we'll have a tyrant and then we will have a wise man or woman or like is, is there a destiny there to are we in a cycle yeah well first of all there are cycles but what undoes the cycle or prevents it fulfilling itself is conscious endeavor so if you take uh, i just say it like this as a body gets older right it will definitely become softer and normally wider and a few things like that it is possible through conscious endeavor to work out in a gym and keep the body in good shape but it won't stay in the same shape as when you were 16 without conscious endeavour. So the cycle will happen unless there's conscious endeavour. If this is encouraging to you, one of the great sages of the world from India died around the end of the 19th century, said that in the first half of the 20th century, there would be an upturn in consciousness a significant and material upturn in consciousness of the world, and then it would go into decline again, into serious decline. What was his name? His name was Ramakrishna, Swami Ramakrishna, an outstanding sage. And he said that in the Kali Yuga, if you accept, now you don't have to, but if you accept these people who study history, etc., in the Kali Yuga, it's not that it's a straight line down like that. What you get is you get a decline, a partial rise, but then a further decline. It's a bit like if we're going to run the world according to false economics, we will have bust and boom and bust and boom and bust and boom. But every time we tinker with it, the next bust will be more serious than the previous one. Like 2007 to 2013 recession was a very serious recession. Some people will say that the next one, which will come in 2025, will wipe out the Western economic world. That we will not survive another because we are so weakened by debt and by the inability to live within our means. You have a government nowadays that effectively says we want to keep our deficit within 3%. Which is basically, you know, that if you own 100 euro, we only want to spend 103. Now ask anybody... ask the thickest human being that you know how long can you maintain that for what about earning 100 and spending 97 what about say earning 120 and let's say we forget other countries in the world and putting aside 23 for the bad times because that's what a government is supposed to do what a government is supposed to do is supposed to be ahead of the people So that in boom times, it draws off the natural surplus out of the economy and fills the government chests with lots of money 
so that when the bad times come, as they do, because there's a cycle to everything, it then releases them into the economy. It's a bit like if you were a person living in the country, you know, in days of old, during the summer you cut down the wood, and then you burn it during the winter. That's the idea. You know, we need to be intelligent about these things. It doesn't make any sense that earning 100 and spending 103 is sustainable. The other thing that's obviously not sustainable is most people would aspire to live to a standard of living, the average standard of living in America. And I think that would be reasonable. I'm not sure about this statistic. It may be much worse than I'm about to say. If the world was to live according to the consumption levels of the Americans, the Earth, Mother Earth, will have to yield seven times what she yields now. Can you imagine trying to extract all the minerals and all the food to the level of seven times of what its Mother Earth is yielding now? It's just unsustainable. Nowhere does it say that never-ending growth is good. It doesn't say it anywhere. There's no proof that it's good. Everything goes in a cycle. And everything has to rest. If there wasn't a winter you know, where the Earth rested, you'd have desertification all over the place. So there has to be a time when there is no growth. And then you live off your surpluses which you've put aside for those bad times. This was the story of Jacob and his dreams. If you really want to understand economics, read the Bible. It'll tell you exactly how to live. It's all there. But that's just on economics, on Hmm? on the idea of man learning to be kind to each other and loving each other. Are we in a cycle there? Well, the cycle is getting worse and worse there, fundamentally. Because what's happening is that the natural place to learn to love is family. That's the natural place. You take a child, comes into the family, love and affection is poured on it, it learns that. It starts off, it undoubtedly loves itself at the beginning, then it loves its mother and its father. After a few grumpy years it begins to love its siblings and everything like that. But the idea of parenting, or excellent parenting and excellent education is that you don't allow the child to stop at a particular level. Like, I've got my mother, my father, two brothers, a sister, a dog, a budgerigar, and five friends. And that's enough for me. The idea is that love should be encouraged to expand and expand and expand. And include everybody. And children need to be parented in that way, and they need to be educated in that way. And it's to see yourself as a citizen of the world, not as, you know, I'm a Southsider. Or even worse, a (laughs) Northsider. Like when you vote, how do you vote? What's your consideration? Whether the party will look after you or look after the country or look after the world? Both. Well, if it looks after the world, it's going to look after you because you're in the world. Don't want to necessarily bring in too much tragedy into this conversation, but those 800 migrants that were drowned... And the leaders of many countries gathered together and what are we going to do? And it's appalling. The level of thinking is just appalling. They're going to increase the patrols to stop these boats landing in Europe. But that doesn't solve the situation of these people who are trying to escape their countries. Are we just going to keep them out? Now, it can't just have wave after wave of people coming into your country. But are we just going to put up the ramparts and say, that's, now we've done our job? We have to find a way of caring for everybody. And it is possible. 
What's very important is not to always think of the big picture. It's to care for the person in front of you. Mother Teresa said it beautifully. She said, if I hadn't picked up the first person, I would never have picked up the thousands thereafter. And you and I can pick up one person. We can make one person's life better. That's all that's necessary. Relatively small percentage of the population will change the world. It's like in a church. One or two great people. So if you get a a St. Francis of Assisi, my understanding of religious history is that he uplifted the entire Christian church. One man with a loving heart. So, it's not that you need 25 million St. Francis of Assisi. You just need a few great people and the rest of the world will follow. And, you know, Ireland, if you take the Republic of Ireland, we have four and a half million people. When are we going to produce a world-class human being? One that will inspire a generation, at least a generation. We should be able to do that. After all, we're fantastic people. What you were saying in regarding the history... Yes. It's very revealing. Mm. But it also teaches us and tells us, does it not, that humankind has not changed. We have just become more. There's six billion around now. There was two when I was born. So everything is exaggerated. We had the Ethiopian problem with uh, Geldof. There's yes. now 90 million people live in Ethiopia. Yes. So in 1950, in Africa, the continent of Africa was half the size of Europe. Yes. After two catastrophic wars, it's now double the population size. So the problems just keep getting more exaggerated. And producing fine human beings, as the Jesuits have been trying to do for hundreds of years, doesn't seem to work. So where are we going to go? The people with power are the ones that, in the really real, that make what matters matter. Sahib Kuteb wrote before Nasser hanged him, he got his work out, milestones. So the Islamic Brotherhood have this as their Bible. So they run this, they Genghis Khan type of violence mm. all over here because to them it is, which is one of the paradoxes, that the, the power of the powerless is now coming to the fore. Mm. As it came when Charles the Force was topped mm. there, Louis the Fourteenth with the ancient regime was gone, or the Tsar went. So these things are going on all the time. But nothing seems to change. Absolutely. But it can change. Can you change? Oh, I agree with that. No, can, and no, that's very no, uplifting. No, very simple that question. Is. Can you yes. change? Yes, I can. Right. And, and the I have lady done. beside you can change, and the man. Yeah, and I have done. I've yeah. experienced and this, you can and it change works more. for me. Yeah, but the you point can change is, more. And I can change more. Yes, but does it change globally? Does it change the, the things that really matter? Does it change the big. It makes I mean, a difference to that starfish. And if enough yeah. people do it. It will change. What's wrong is, if, I don't want to take away from the Jesuits, but if they will not educate man, man, woman, truly, they will not produce great men and women. It doesn't happen by accident that you get great men and women. It comes about through outstanding parenting or outstanding teachers. Well, if I could put this to you, there's, as I say, the population has increased dramatically. But there's less and less great people than there was. So why is that occurring? Because man believes in materialism. He believes if he satisfies the body, he will satisfy himself. But it's absolutely evidently untrue. Because otherwise, why is there an increase in 
depression, suicide, violence, all these sort of things. This is why schools of philosophy emerge. Not just this school of philosophy, but all schools of philosophy. They arise when ignorance becomes so bad that some people say there must be a better way. And so they apply themselves. But it's very long term. But it does change things. Now, what Gadolf did was outstanding and inspirational. But it's not long last. How you change it is by changing ideas. Like an idea can last at least 50 years. Some ideas last thousands of years. So Marx had a, an idea, and let's say it got 50 years out of it. Jesus had an idea, and it got 2,000 years. The idea is to have great ideas. Great, great ideas. To inspire. In, in my lifetime, I have seen great ideas yeah. from these people. And they implemented them. I mean, Mao with the great leap forward. Hmm. Stalin with the five-year plan. They're not great ideas. No, no, but to them they thought they were great I ideas. understand that, but I'm talking about great ideas. Yeah, I understand the language. But to the people that was affected by these things, it was catastrophic. Yes. So why do these things work? I mean, communism in the, in the 1930s was to be the saviour of humanity. Yes. And tens of millions of people paid with their lives would achieve nothing. So where's our great idea going to come from? It's going to change because... We are really in the abyss in regarding war. The point about it is this. When you look at the world, and you look at it intelligently, and you see the way it is, if you're going to look around for somebody else to be great, nothing happens. It's not a matter of looking at, say, at fat people in the world and say obesity is a problem. It's a matter of looking at yourself in the mirror and saying the problem is here. Two feet below my chin, right? <laughs> and, and including the chin, in fact, right? And something has to be done here. And then, if values are lived by here, and they are seen to produce harmony and peace and happiness, or to be conducive to harmony and peace and happiness, then the children will emulate them. Why is it that children's worst nightmare is to turn out like you or me? They dread the thought of it. Please, God, do not let me have a life like him or her. Now, what happens if we could have a number of inspirational people that children would say, I want to live a life as great as that? Then things begin to happen. It's like the RDS Society, which is a tiny little thing, but started by six you know, Trinity students meeting in the Commons room. All things started with the Jesuits. Was, I think it was 12 men. Within 100 years, they were educating 20% of Europe. That was only 12, I think it was, it was 12, around 12 people. Small numbers of people can do great, great things. It starts with parenting. If you don't get the parenting right, the job of the teacher is too difficult. All right. So you get the parenting right, then you get the teaching right. And you make sure that primary education is of primary importance. Third level of education is of tertiary importance. It's the least important education you can give to a human being. The primary education is the most important. This is where you give the human being universal knowledge and universal emotions. By the time they get to the third level, you teach them to be a solicitor or something appalling. We have to get our values right. How many people pick a school for their child because it's local? Would you pick a local a heart surgeon? It'll only be a half an hour drive to the hospital. No, you don't. You say, this is so important. What I want is the best heart surgeon available 
to do the operation. The local one is okay for my wife, but I want the best one. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we have to change our values. So I take it, and I agree with you, that it is really an individual thing. Yes. So when you leave here today, is it going to make any difference? Is this going to be suntan philosophy, you know? Tomorrow morning we wake up pale and emaciated again, or is something going to happen? That's the only question. A simple question is, how do you know what is a good idea, given the history of what people thought, or the last speaker said, were good ideas, and very much the point that someone has to make an evaluation, be that yourself or whoever, and if you get it wrong, the consequences are pretty horrendous. Yes, absolutely. Well, there are two things you can do, which can help. One is this. If you want to know about happiness, ask a man or woman who is happy. Don't ask miserable people how to live. If you want to know about success, ask a successful person. So ask people who demonstrate it and walk the talk, if you want to put it like that. So that's one way of doing it. The second way, the Shankarachari was asked about this, about knowing effectively a good action. And he says, the more people that benefit from an action, the better it is. Say if you're a married man, you might do something which benefits you and your wife, or maybe then you, your wife, and your children. Well, that is good up to a point. But if it could also benefit your neighbours, like you decided to cut the grass for everybody's sake, right, or whatever it is, So the more people that can benefit from your action. So that's what you should look. So when you are acting or enacting an idea, how many people would benefit from it? Like my experience, as I said, I work in business and I advise companies. And and you see an awful lot of ideas and they're only for an element of the business. They might be just for the owner. They might be for the senior management. They might be just for the employees. They might be for the customer. So the idea is that a good idea is one where it's win, 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 win. Not win, lose. Everybody should benefit. A good deal is where both people walk away with a smile on their face. And that's what you look for. You look for, if you're a businessman, you look for a reasonable profit. You don't exploit. If there's a drought, you don't charge more for the water. That's not reasonable. But it is right that you earn a reasonable profit for your labourers. And what you earn, it may need to be ten times what another man earns. How you know a good idea is that by the degree that people benefit. The wider the circle of beneficiaries, the better the idea. And just to say two things, which has just come to mind as a result of your question. You know the word jubilee. Do you you know where that comes from? The jubilee year, which is the 50th year. And it's in the Judaic tradition. And in the Judaic tradition what happens is the land is all distributed out to everybody in equal plots. Is that okay? And you have the use of that land for 49 years. And in that 49 years, you know, the hard-working may accumulate a number of plots and the, the lazy and the whatever like that may lose their plots of land. But in the 50th year, all the land is given back to the tribe again and it's all reallocated. Every generation gets its opportunity. You can do that. You know, that's a very simple law to do. What Socrates said, if you want to have a society that will last, that the richest man should earn no more than seven times the poorest man. So whatever you pay the so-called lowest man, the wealthiest job should be paid at seven times that level. That stops the excesses. 
I tell you just another nice story, and this is related in some books, so I take it to be true, but as you know, India, I think it's got its independence in 1948, around then, and Gandhi, albeit the powerful figure, never actually took political office, but he certainly was the powerhouse behind everything. And I think about two years after independence anyway, a politician came to him and said, the people do not obey us and they do not respect us. What should we do? And he said, whatever your income is as a politician, reduce it to one third of what it is and do exactly the same work and they will respect you and they will obey you. And they did. See, that's outstanding. It's like heading up a charity should not be a career. It should be a service. These are very simple things. When an 18-year-old leaves school, it should be, the thought in their mind is, what can I do for the world or what can I do for my nation? How can I enrich it with the talents that I've been given? It is simple. They're all very simple values. And it works in family. In a family, one person doesn't starve while the others eat. In a true family. Shankaracharya was asked about this. He said, family is the natural welfare state. Family, according to its ability, should look after its own. Don't ask the state to take care of your children and your parents. Can't do it. So these are very simple principles. It's for everybody to do it. And again, I'll finish with this. I've said this before and it's slightly humorous, but it's also true. Leon McLaren, the man who founded the School of Philosophy, said that pensions came into existence when man decided that he did not have to care for his parents. So I thought that was a disgusting concept, the idea of not caring for your parents. Particularly when I became a parent, I thought it was even more disgusting. Right? <laughs> and, so, 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 anyway, we have four children. And from a very early age, before they could even pronounce the word pension, I told them, I said, you are my pension. I am investing in you. I'm investing in you that you will be such human beings that your mother or myself will never suffer poverty or isolation or loneliness. But what do we do? We have a sort of a sentimental idea. We don't want to be burdensome on our parents. We want to deprive our children the opportunity to express their love for us. But we say we don't want to be a burden. And what we do is we take vast sums of money out of our current income and put it out of use so that we can live isolated lives after 65. Why not invest in family now and let family take care of you? These sort of ideas? Thanks very much for the talk. It's terrific, no actually. So it gave me some bit of uh, fuel for thinking. Yes. Something I came across recently was the Catholic Church. It just struck me there when you were speaking. It has transcended you know, all sorts of cultures, you know, over 2,000 years. Saw away the Roman Empire and all the others, and it's still here. So how would you account for that, or where would you see that in terms of, of your talk? Well, the strength of the church, the Catholic Church, so that it could survive 2,000 years, is the strength of the teachings of Christ. The Catholic Church is nothing without the teachings of Christ. And they are an outstanding set of teachings. So they're not teachings for 2,000 years ago. They're not teachings for a small tribe in Israel. At one level, you could say they're teaching for all mankind for all time. So love thy neighbor as thyself is not something which belongs to a particular era 
or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The essential teachings are the rules of mundane behavior and spiritual endeavor. So the words will last for all time, just as Jesus said they would. The institutions which hold them may not. So whether there will be a Roman Catholic Church in another 2,000 years' time, who knows? People who prophesize its immediate disappearance, I think, are jumping the gun quite a bit. The history of the Roman Catholic Church, as with other churches, is that periodically a great man or woman arises which uplifts the church again, which reminds the institution of the essential message. And ritual and dogma subside and are replaced by true spirituality. And then the strength comes back. Because this is what people want. A lady I know was talking to a Jesuit recently and he said, the age of the cleric is over. So the idea of the cleric being an intermediary between the follower and God, according to him, is over. What people now want, those who do believe in the words of Christ or the words of anybody, they want a direct relationship. They don't want it via, let's say, a parish priest. If they're going to have a relationship with God, they want it with God himself or itself. And he said that in the future, man will either be a mystic or an atheist which is fantastic. If man became mystical, the human being became mystical, that would be fantastic. Because the great thing about all the mystics is they broke all the rules. Just to give you a sense of one of them, and and I've told this story before, but John Scotus Erugena, who is the the greatest philosopher that Ireland has ever produced from 8th and 9th centuries. At that time, there was a dispute raging in Europe about predestination. So there was the belief that certain people were predestined to go to heaven and some people were predestined to go to hell. And it's an interesting point, but anyway, that was the thing that was raging throughout Europe. And the local archbishop, who was a very powerful man, he asked John Scotus Erigena to examine this. And basically what he wanted him to do was to throw out the concept of predestination which is a very harsh belief system. Anyway, John Scotus wrote a treatise on it, came back about, I think, six months or a year later, and he said, yes, there is predestination, which made the Archbishop extremely angry. But he said, the predestination that is true is not what most people believe. He said, everything arises from the one, and it is predestined that everything will return to the one. So he eliminated hell in one stroke, right? And purgatory and limbo and all of these things. Now, these are not his words, but he said something to the effect that it is inconceivable that all arising from the one should return and stand in the presence of the one, but not merge in the one. So he also eliminated heaven. (laughs) Outstanding. Now, you see, that's the great thing about the really spiritual men. They will not be tied down by dogma or, or anything. They won't be tied down. They, are, they want freedom. The real freedom. 
And if that is to come, if a great man or a woman, and only, by the way, it only takes one, St. Francis of Assisi, effectively revitalized the whole Catholic Church. Effectively, that man did it. It only takes one man. And surely the world can produce a man or a woman who breaks all the limits. I think that's possible. The other thing, if you haven't read it, any of you haven't read it, I would absolutely recommend it. Pope John Paul II wrote a... What do you call, what's a papal, a papal encyclical? What do you call those? Good Lord. <laughs> I, think, I, I think it was a papal encyclical. I'll settle for encyclical because I can spell it and pronounce it. Now, they, they, it was Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. And if you go on to the Vatican site... You can download it for free. And it's about 20 or 30 pages long. And it is outstanding document. In it, he encourages the philosopher and the religious man, stroke woman, to unite in their pursuit of truth. He says that in the future, priests will have to study much more philosophy. And he also says that the philosopher will have to know and understand religion much more. So that's why he calls it faith and reason. He actually uses the analogy that a bird never flew on one wing. So it needs the wing of faith and the wing of reason. It is an outstanding piece of work and would give you great hope for the future. The interesting thing is, now not that I've asked very many, but for a number of years after he produced it, I asked a number of priests had they read it. And to a man they said they hadn't. So I knew he was onto something. (laughs) This is it. This is the goal. If they're not reading it, he's right. (laughs) Now, my belief is this, is if you take something like Karl Marx, Karl Marx was putting forward his theories, but 50 years later, they dominated the universities and came into the world. It's my belief, I won't be around for it, but that... This encyclical will manifest, but it might be another 40 years. So I've told my son, watch out, watch out for this. But that's how it has survived. It survived not because of its material strength. The Roman Catholic Church has a lot of the qualities of an empire. So it had the idea of central authority, rule, order, obedience, the same law everywhere, all of that, which are fantastic strengths. But just like the Roman Empire collapsed, those factors will not be enough for the church to survive. What every church has to do is go back to its source, to the simple message. If you take that before uh, Christ came, the Judaic faith had produced lots of ritual and dogma, and he came and he destroyed it all, broke it all. They couldn't work out whether you should take a sheep out of a ditch or not on a Sunday. They'd forgotten the essence of Judaism. And he came along and he said the most you know, magnificent statement that man is not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. See, and he broke it. He broke the rules. And that's what we need. We need great politicians. And we need great religious leaders who will break all the rules. And we need you and me to break all the rules. Break them all. To question everything. Like this fixation with having a house when you're 25 and being mortgaged for 30 years. Who said that that is the right way to live? There's so many behaviours which are accepted as good, which are completely untested. And the only evidence is they produce misery. The great man will not emerge, the great man, woman, 
will not emerge until there are great people to be led. They never emerge when the people are not worthy of a great leader, religious or political. You have to earn your leader. So if you look at the world today and you look at our political leaders or our religious leaders, we are earning the ones we've got. They are a reflection of us. They're picked from amongst us. Does that make sense? No point in looking to them and blaming them. I mean, who would want to lead you lot? (laughs) In our family, once we sat down and we did a family charter. Like a country would have a charter for itself, you know, well, or a business would have. Well, we wrote a family charter, what, what the Mulhalls stood for, the values we stood for, and how we wished to make our contribution to the world. And if I look at my children, you know, and there are four of them, I think they are greater men and women than their mother and their father. And already there are grandchildren. And I have some hope for them that a, a good or a great Mulhall might emerge in the third generation. And that would be excellent. That would be an excellent contribution to this country that, that this family produced one man or woman of stature or substance. And anybody can do that. Anybody. They just let the bad die with you and the good go on to the next generation. That's not the most difficult thing in the world. So, sorry, does that answer your question at all? Yeah. With your profound insights and... Um, Smarmy, isn't he? (laughs) And incomparable wisdom and understanding of human nature. Would you be hopeful for the future? I use the word hopeful because just picking up on your answers to the previous question, you seem to be relying more on hope that a leader might arise and so on, but that's not a great basis to look into the future. Are human beings capable of more than just hope? Is there some... Deus ex machina or something like that which can be dragooned, called into action. And I'm not talking about new political party, right? Where is the basis for hope? You. What? You. I know, I know, I understand that. I understand that. I understand but, that. I understand that. But... Ah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I'm, ta- I'm, ta- I'm talking about society at large. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. What? I'm talking about that. Yeah, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, there goes hope. <laughs> <laughs> so let us live in darkness. Yeah. No. But you see, the, the, the minute you look around to see who else is going to do the job, there is no hope. The minute you look around, you have to stop looking around and you have to look within and say, how can I enrich myself? And if you do enrich yourself, you will enrich the world. That's how it changes. I wasn't talking about hope at all. I gave, if I may say so, I gave eight practices, not eight hopes. Eight practices which each and every one of us should execute every day of our lives. And if we do that, great men and women will emerge. As I said about the Mulhalls and three generations, the setting up of John Scotus was with that in view. It was to set up a school where the truth about man would be given to the children. So that one day, and I don't mean in my lifetime, that one day a real human being would emerge. But it won't emerge elsewhere. It all has to start here. So that's what you should do. You should look to yourself. There are certain qualities which you have a natural abundance of, and there are certain areas where they're lacking. 
but where you have an abundance well develop them and display freely does that make sense? But see, that's fine starting with yourself. Yes. But how does one create a ripple effect? Yes, it will. You know what you're looking for, which was pointed out? You're looking for immediacy. It doesn't happen like that. If you want an oak forest, it's going to take 200 years. If you want great men and women, it's going to take a long time before they emerge. You have to create the soil. You have to till it and remove all of the weeds and the rubbish for it again and again and again until that soil is worthy of a great tree or a great human being. So it takes time. It's one of the big arguments I have. Let's say the School of Philosophy does not have many young people in it. Yet when I joined the School of Philosophy and I joined when I was 24 the vast majority of people were my age younger and slightly older. The vast, vast majority. And now... 40 years later, the vast majority are in their 40s before they come. The cry of the young is immediacy. They want to give soup to the poor. They want to give soup today. But the school of philosophy doesn't work on today. It works on laying a foundation that might create a civilization or something that will last 500 years or 1,000 years or 2,000 years. So it's not interested in feeding man, when I say it's not interested exclusively in feeding man today, but in creating thoughts, ideas, great thoughts and ideas that would allow every human being to be fed for thousands of years. You have to do the work. If you won't do it, then somebody else has to do your work for you. And that's very unfair to ask another human being to do your work. You have been exposed to great philosophical teachings by being in the school. and So you have to do something with it. So the question is, what can you do for the world? When I say the world, it's the world you meet. There was an uncle of mine, Uncle Nick. And he died maybe about ten years ago. And I was at his funeral. And one of his long-term friends just said a phrase to me. He said, Nick, always a gentleman. I said to him, my God, that is so true. That is so true. My entire interactions with Uncle Nick over 30 or 40 years flashed in front of my eyes and I saw that this man was always a gentleman. Albeit it has not emerged to the degree that it emerged in Uncle Nick, it inspired me to make endeavours to be a gentleman. A lot of people were at this funeral and they were talking about this. And to every one of them, he inspired gentlemanness in them that's a fantastic thing to do so we can all do something there are people we know and they have a level of compassion that uplifts us or a level of dignity or generosity of spirit or patience you can look that up in the dictionary as to what it means (laughs) 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 all these wonderful things And why not just take one quality and bring it to a level of magnificence so that every person who ever meets you is reminded of this outstanding virtue? Anybody can do that. That's how to be memorable. That's how to cheat death. It's to live on in the minds and hearts of people. That's how you cheat death. Not with medicine. And it is possible. Everybody can do it. Everybody has something to offer, something great to offer. It may not be world stage stuff, and that's irrelevant, but everybody has something to offer. 
you know, in an orchestra, if one violinist doesn't turn up, the whole melody is changed by the absence of one person. If you don't do your bit, the universal song is changed. It's less sweet. What the Shankaracharya said, if the school could produce six men or women, there would be a new renaissance. Can you believe that? That's all it would take. The Roman Catholic Church it only took 12 men. That's all, 12. I mean, there's a little bit more in here. Well, more wimps, actually, probably. <laughs> but it would, <laughs> it would only take 12 men to create the Christian faith or to spread it. That's fantastic. Six human beings to create a renaissance. According to Leon McLaren, the man who founded the school, renaissances have three strengths, three areas in which they flourish. The last one was art, music and science. Now, look at what has come from effectively the Italian Renaissance in terms of art, music and science. It has absolutely enriched the world. He said there will be a new Renaissance. You can't get schools of philosophy, and I don't mean this school of philosophy, you can't get schools of philosophy without Renaissances coming. They always do. I did ask him, what would the three subjects be of the next Renaissance? Economics, law and language. Now, if you look at those statistics, or if you remember any of the statistics that I read out about the ice cream and all these things, can you imagine if the world lived by true economics and had true law? So we had prosperity and justice for the world. Wouldn't that be fantastic? The third one was language. And again, if you look at language, it's just appalling now. And I don't mean bad language. I mean the capacity of the human being to express themselves, their inner world, is at nearly an all-time low. People have fewer and fewer words. In my experience, what you'll always notice is the less words a human being has, the greater the depression and mental illness and all of these things. Because unless man can reveal his inner world, he can't cure himself. He has to get it out there. It's so important. Everybody looks around and says, why doesn't the government do more? Why don't the schools do more? Why don't the doctors do more? Why don't we have universal this and that? But that's not the way forward. The way forward is that families become strong. Families care for each other. That the young are cared for. That the elderly are cared for. And that with strong families we get strong communities so that each community has its libraries and its schools and its hospitals and things like that. Once you centralise it, it all becomes driven by money and not by love. And so if the government is out of money, it doesn't build a hospital or the school. Whereas if you build it from family, then everything is pervaded by love. At one level, social welfare is fine. At another level, it's a waste of time because it doesn't offer the human being the opportunity to express himself or to make a contribution. And it's not delivered in love. You mentioned breaking all the laws. Now, one of the laws is do not kill. So, which laws are to be broken and which aren't? All laws which restrict freedom should be broken. <laughs> Law is for happiness. So when you say that everybody must drive on the left-hand side of the road and that people should obey 40 miles per hour in a particular zone, 
that is not to restrict people's happiness, it's to ensure people's happiness. So laws which promote freedom and happiness are to be obeyed, and all those laws are found in the scriptures. They're all found in the scriptures. And those which restrict are man-made laws which ignore scripture. It's only about a hundred years ago was the first time that men in the Western world began to pass laws without reference to the Gospels. Do you remember the snail in the bottle case? Anybody remember that? Well, I'm not going to tell you. It's too long a story. But it was based on love thy neighbour as thyself. What is your duty to your neighbour? The legislators looked to the Gospels for the basis for their law. Like, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. You can't enact a bad law if it's in harmony with do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you. It's not possible. But if you ignore great truths like that, then you can get expediency and hardship and, or, or hardness of heart and you can get laws which are for the benefit of 60% of the population and not the other 40%. But not with do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So it's very important to refer to these. And there's nothing church, if I may say so, about do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It is true spirituality. And it's in every great religion and every great philosophy. And the reason why it is, is because it is a universal law for the behavior of mankind. It doesn't belong to any religion. No religion can claim it and say, we thought it of. It comes with humanity. Like you could say it comes from reason. Ultimately, it will stand to reason and it will be imbued with love. That's a very good test for anything. If you have an idea about enacting something, you ask yourself, does it stand to reason and is it imbued with love? And if you can answer yes to both of those, well, I know of no circumstances in which you can be in error. My question is, I think a lot of people... Just to live one lifetime is an awful lot, given the suffering that has been given to everyone individual to a certain degree. So my question is, the idea of thousands of years we have to wait to get to a certain point before there is this bliss for mankind. There is passages, and I can't quote them, that Christ said, such as, where I go, I prepare a place for you, so where I may be, you may be. That there is a kingdom that is the void of suffering and this physical reality people seem to find a struggle that if you are a righteous person you can get to that kingdom but it's not coming back to earth it's a, another paradise you may call it. well I don't agree with that uh, what you've just said because why wait you seem to be talking about after death I'm not willing to wait till after death for bliss I want to be blissful now I actually am blissful right now Why not? If bliss was subject to time, then I don't want it. I want something that's eternal. I want a bliss that is eternal and therefore not subject to time, which is not an effect, which is not dependent on another or anything. You quoted Jesus, so I'm going to quote Jesus back to you. He says, the kingdom of heaven is within you. He doesn't say it will be 80 years of righteous living and you might have the kingdom of heaven within you. you He doesn't say that at all. He says it is within you. And my experience is that whether you're religious or not religious, first of all, my experience and the experience of anybody that I've ever read, if they ever look within, that's what they find. They find unconditional love, absolute bliss, total freedom, eternal peace. 
you mentioned the word suffering, and I've said this before, but I just repeat it. The word suffer means to allow. That's what it means. It doesn't mean endure. It doesn't mean to be under the cosh. It means to allow. When Jesus said, suffer these little children to come unto me, he meant allow the little children to come unto him. So it means to allow. What we call suffering is non-allowing. Not allowing. It's resisting. Allow and you cannot suffer. You cannot suffer at all. All suffering is caused by resistance. By wanting things to be other than they are. So accept everything as it is. Not in apathy, but accept it unconditionally. And then there is no more suffering. None at all. It doesn't make any difference what happens. You're not on this earth to suffer. If you can... Since you quoted Jesus, I'll quote him back. You're here to glorify your Father. Not by crying your eyes out and saying, this is miserable and I can't wait to get to heaven. The gates to the Garden of Eden are wide open. The only question is, why won't you walk into them or walk through them? If you take the Garden of Eden story and it says that man ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And because of this, he knew good and evil. And with the knowledge of good and evil he began to become miserable. He walked out of the Garden of Eden. So the question is, what is man meant to know? He's not meant to know good and evil. He's meant to know the truth. And when he knows the truth, he walks right back into the Garden of Eden, with or without a body. So that's what's necessary. One of the reasons that children tend to be happier than adults is they have no knowledge of good and evil. A child goes down the road and goes back with somebody else's bicycle. If you say that's a bad thing to do, he looks at you. Not because he's mafia, right? But because he thinks the whole creation is for me. It's for my pleasure. It's all for me. But he's no knowledge of good and evil. So he picks the legs off spiders, you know, to see what it would be like to live as a three-legged spider. And then a two-legged one, you know. See the world at an angle. Then a one-legged one. See the world as a sort of a ballet spider. And then no, no legs at all. And to see the world as a stationary spider. But do you think he's doing bad? Do you think he's evil? Do you think, ooh, serial killer here? <laughs> I knew it was in the mother's side. <laughs> no, he doesn't do that at all. He has no knowledge of evil. You have to teach him to apologize. You have to teach him sorry. You have to teach him that he's a bad boy. He doesn't think he's a good boy, by the way, at the start. He's just a boy. What are you? I'm a boy. (laughs) But then you teach him he's a good boy and a bad boy. You seem to be an awful lot happier when he's a good boy. So he makes efforts to be a good boy. But it's bloody awful being good all the time. The bad seem to have more fun. They get to pull their legs off spiders and things like that, (laughs) which I'm now forbidden to do. So forget all that stuff. Forget this low-level knowledge. And go for the highest knowledge. And then, as I said, you, you can only suffer in the truest sense, i.e. that you will allow everything, but you won't suffer as we understand suffering. If you've missed the bus, allow it. Allow the missing. If you missed the aeroplane, allow the missing. If you're going to die young, allow yourself to die young. Allow yourself to be married, allow yourself to be single, allow yourself to be wealthy, allow yourself to be poor. Just allow it. And then you'll be perfectly happy. You don't have to wait for another place or another world. It won't be time dependent. 
And it won't be environment dependent and it won't be people dependent. When you're a little boy, spiritually, and you're a Christian little boy, you should depend on Christ. When you're a big boy and you're a Christian, you should become one with Christ. No dependency. If you look at St. John's Gospel, from about 14 to 18, chapters 14 to 18, it's the Last Supper. Later tonight or tomorrow, read it. It is la creme de la creme de la creme of the Christian teaching. Because he starts off, he says to the disciples, up to now I have called you servants. But the servant doesn't know what the master knows. And then he goes on. So that's the beginning of it. And then he goes on and he says, now I call you friends. And the essential quality of friendship is equality. You can't be a true friend of another if you think you're superior to another. So he calls them friends. Now, they were servants and now they're friends. Then, very close to the end, he says, I'm in the Father and ye are me and I can't remember the third bit. Now they're no longer friends. They're one. And when you're one, you won't need any Christ to create a paradise for you. In the Christian teaching, you will have fulfilled the Christian journey. And that would be outstanding. We need a few real Christians on this earth. We also need a few real Muslims and a few real Jews and a few real Buddhists and a few real Hindus and a few real philosophers. And we already have one. And I think on that appalling note, I'm going to. <laughs> so, so, thank you very much. Yeah.